Attention, attention all personnel, it's MASHCAST! Hello and welcome to MASHCAST, the show that analyzes and celebrates, episode by episode, the greatest TV series of all time, MASH, which aired on CBS from 1972 to 1983. Proud member of the Fine Water Podcast Network, I'm your host, General Robert Iron Guts Kelly, and joining us this week in the VIP tent is Lieutenant Kristen Goss. Hi, Kristen. Hi, Rob. Great to be on this. I'm so excited. Oh, I'm so happy to have you here. We've been talking for like a while about you being on the show. And then I think when we first discussed it, it was like, there's one like season four. And I'm like, oh, we'll do season six. It was like two years in the future. And it seems so far away. But now we're here to talk about the season six episode images, which is, of course, uh, episode nine from this season. It originally aired on November 15th, 1977. But before we get into all the details of the episode, Kristen, this is your first appearance on the show. So I got to ask, how did you become a fan of MASH in the first place? Well, I think like a lot of your guests, MASH was just always on in my childhood. I was a suburban 70s kid and uh, it was always on Channel 7 in kind of regular runs and then reruns on Channel 2. But um, and and we watched a lot of TV um, in those days. So, you know, so MASH was just part of the cultural fabric. And I actually did what all middle aged women do, which is before getting on this podcast, I pulled my friends my age and all of us watched. I think it was just integral to our childhood. And, and, you know, obviously it is just, it was a quick, witty, character driven show. Um, you know, all this, the sets the same, the jobs the same, the clothes are the same, the foods are the same. So the characters and the plots really, you know, kind of pop. And that, that's my basic story. It was just, kind of integral to my coming of age. But but can I can I address the question that you always ask cuz I think it's also an answer to this one, which is why do kids like mash? Sure. All right. So I one of your guests and I'm so I apologize to the person, the brilliant person who said this, but said something to the effect that it was sort of parallel what's happening at the 4077 is parallel to what kids experience. You know, there are all these rules that are made by other people. Yes. You have yes. to follow them. And you're kind of rooting for all the kids who subvert the rules, you know, which would be like Hawkeye and BJ. And I started thinking about that. It's really stuck with me. And I think you could draw out even more parallels. Like the 4077th is your school. And Potter is your strict and kindly principal. And Margaret is your kind of school marmish teacher who's trying to keep order in the chaos. <laughs> Frank is the bully. This is courtesy <laughs> of my friend Marsha. That's <laughs> but great. Like in real life, the bully That's gets great. his comeuppance, right? And the mess tent is your cafeteria. Jeff Maxwell is your, you know, lunch lady. Sorry, <laughs> sorry Jeff. Lunch lady, uh, Igor. I love it. That's great. <laughs> you know, with daily slop dumped on your tray, you have minimal choice. It's kind of a metaphor, right, for everything. And I think also, like, school can be really lonely. Everybody's trying to fit in and be in with a cool group and whatnot. And it's so funny. I, um, I hadn't even made this connection until really recently, but I, I gave a eulogy for my favorite high school teacher who died probably 15 years ago, way prematurely. And in the eulogy, I actually used those lines from BJ's line from Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen. I can't imagine what this place would have been like if I hadn't found you here. So even then, like I was mm. just sort of implicitly thinking the 477 is high school. <laughs> anyway, so I think that's a lot of reason why a lot of us liked it as kids is because it was kind of a, a projection of what what we were experiencing ourselves. I wish I could remember to credit properly the guest that said that. And if you're listening to this guest who who said it on the show, please mention the, that in the comments on over on the website, finewaterpodcast.com, because you deserve credit. 
for that that uh, insight because once that person said it and then you've extrapolated on it even further which is great all these you know parallels it, it's like duh you know how did, how did i how have i been watching this show for 40 years and i've never thought about that but that's that's exactly why i think a lot of kids tap into it even though it's full of old-timey jokes and old-timey references you know uh to coleman hawkins and stuff and yet kids still liked it that's why i liked it you know and so it's like yeah it is a lot like school it's like there's the popular table. There's the, the you know the in group, the out group. There's the, the it really all tracks really quite wonderfully. So totally. yeah, yeah. I, I said it. It's, it's an amazing. It, it's not a show that you would think kids would like. And then the more the more I've discovered that there was like a lot of merchandising aimed at kids, which was all a gigantic failure, by the way. Like just because something had kid appeal doesn't mean that it translated into kids wanted to like play with toys, mash yeah. toys. But really tapped into a lot of kids' brains, like our age, kids our age, and that we obsess about it now as adults. And again, you wouldn't think on paper it would be a kid show, but obviously it connected quite well with kids. And I will, I will make this observation since this is the first episode I'm recording since that we, my wife and I just finished a week of uh, baby slash house slash dog sitting for her nephews, and they are 11 and 8, and they had such a Hawkeye Trapper energy. Between the two of them, it was unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. they, they got along. They were kind of co-conspirators against us in some ways. Then they would fight and they would get over it. And it was, it was, I really saw a lot of parallels there between the two of them. So yeah, there's a lot more to this, you know, kids like mash thing than you would necessarily expect. Yeah. And I think you're right about the cultural illusions. Some of them are obviously going to go way over kids' heads, but as I rewatched images, a lot of the, the, dialogue is is completely accessible to a 10 year old or a 12 year old it's just witty Mm -hmm. you know and I know a lot of your guests have said well we watched it with our parents and and a lot of my friends did too uh and and I think it's a show that had kind of something for everyone so the parents would get the allusions to Dorothy L'Amour (laughs) would enjoy you know the takedowns of Frank and Klinger in the dress or whatever Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. radar being scared at things and stuff like that there's a reason why 109 million people watch the last episode. You don't, you don't get to something with that kind of numbers unless it has a, a broad appeal. So I do want to ask you in terms of the show, do you have a particular favorite or profession? I would say favorite because that sounds a little too harsh. Do you have like a preferred era of the show? Like the Hawkeye Trapper Henry years, the Hawkeye Frank BJ years, the Winchester years. Or is there one era that's like just a little more in your wheelhouse than others? Yeah, I, th- I think I'm with you. It's it's seasons four or five, and and I think six is interesting because you've got Charles and and it's also um, an interesting transitional year too, from kind of the the certainly from the seasons one through three, but it it's it's sort of presaging what the rest of the run is going to be more somber, more serious, um, you know, less frank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, you know, less womanizing, less, you know, kind of debauchery. And, uh, yeah, I think it's these middle seasons are my favorite. All right. Well, let's talk about this, uh, the show that you just mentioned. I said it's images. It's uh, episode nine from this season. It originally aired November 15th, 1977, written by the always dependable Bert Prolutsky and directed by Bert Metcalf. A patient in surgery is covered with tattoos to the amazement of everyone in the OR. Also during that same session, a newly arrived nurse named Cooper runs out on BJ during an operation when she gets overwhelmed at what she sees. Margaret reads Cooper the riot act, telling her that if she does it again, she'll be transferred out. 
Some of the other nurses ask Hawkeye and BJ to get Margaret to ease up on Cooper, but she's not having any of it. Ritter later asks the GI with all all the tattoos about them, saying he wants to get one as well. The GI is very pro-tattoo, and when he talks about the benefits of them, the number one qualifier is, the ladies won't leave you alone, and that's all Radar needs to hear. Meanwhile, Margaret has Cooper transferred out of OR duty and recommends her transfer to Colonel Potter. When Potter gets Margaret's request, he has a talk with her in his office, where he turns the transfer down. Margaret is angry at being overruled and says she'll only go along if it's in order. Potter says it is, and Margaret storms out. Radar turns to Hawkeye and BJ for advice about a tattoo, but they are completely against it. Radar, though, is still determined to get one, so they accompany him to Rosie's bar where he gets to make sure everything is, an- so they make sure everything can be as antiseptic as possible. While there, they meet a friendly sergeant who is covered in tattoos, but gives Radar some horror stories about getting them and tells him in no uncertain terms and not to get one. Radar is swayed by this argument until Klinger wanders in and spills the beans that this whole thing was a setup. Radar, angry at being fooled, marches off to the back room to get his tattoo. Meanwhile, Margaret overhears some nurses talking about that the camp mutt that Margaret had taken a shine to was hit by a jeep and killed. She gets so upset, she storms back to her tent, bumping into Hawkeye. He senses something is wrong, and after some pushing, she starts to break down. In her tent, she insists she's not upset about the dog, but eventually the tears start to flow. Later in post-op, Margaret talks to Nurse Cooper and apologizes for being so tough. She leaves Cooper with the advice, just don't let it get to you. In Radar's office, Hawkeye, BJ, and Colonel Potter demand to see Radar's tattoo. Despite his protests, he is forced to drop his pants and show the tattoo he got on his rear end, a tiny teddy bear. But it's not a real tattoo. Radar was so afraid of the needle, he had them draw it on with ink, explaining it'll come off when he takes a bath. Hawkeye responds with, my God, it is permanent. All right, Kristen, uh, that is images. Again, we'll go through it beat by beat. But what is your overall impression of this episode? So this is an episode that I think gets more and more profound and complex and even more literary. I will say that with every viewing. So I, it starts to me, it starts with kind of two seemingly unrelated plots, the Margaret Norse Cooper plot and the radar tattoo plot, but they become interrelated as the show goes on and you start thinking about the parallels between them. So I think in the, you know, obviously we'll go through scene by scene, but I think in the meta sense, this is an episode that is about how we project authority and hide vulnerability. So you've got Margaret, who's really hard on the new nurse and has to hide her grief over the puppy's death. And Radar's a sweet kid trying to cover that up figuratively and literally, I guess, with a tattoo hmm. of a tiger or a snake. And and more specifically, I think this is really about um, striving to project an image of 1950s masculinity, because that's kind of what war demands. And I, one of the things that hit me, and, and we could talk about this, is just how many, it's called images, but how many different definitions of that term are on display in this plot? And that that's, you know, just kind of Philosophically, what I love about this um, episode, I think the acting is fantastic. I really focused a lot on Loretta Sweat and Gary Berghoff because this was really a uh, Hulahan and Radar episode. I think their their acting was just exquisite. I mean, she ha- she had a total range of emotional, you know, a wide emotional range, but she never got maudlin or overwrought or cheaply sentimental. I mean, just brilliant and Gary Burkhoff was exquisite I mean the the facial expressions the timing I've always loved Radar but I think that his acting just shone in this episode and and it was just so witty there were so many one-liners I know your your question is always going to be like what's your favorite 
what's your favorite line? And I, I mean, I, I don't know how to even pick. There was, it was funny for something that had such a dark kind of theme to it. Um, and such a tragic end if you're an animal lover like I am. Um, and, but it was witty. And I, th- I thought even Mike Farrell was, seemed to be laughing for real at about some hmm. points in the episode. So. Bird Prolutsky, uh, didn't write that many mashes. I think he wrote about half a dozen, but his batting average was pretty unmatched in terms of how good his episodes were. Uh, I mean, I think he wrote some of the best show. He wrote Quo Vadis, Captain Chandler. I mean, you know, he really wrote some masterpieces for seasons four and five. And it says something about his skill that, I mean, not that MASH in season six was some drastically different show than it was the previous seasons, but it was a little different. Tonally, it was a little different. And of course, we have Winchester instead of Frank Burns and stuff. But the fact that he could write another show for season six and it'd be of a of a parody you know with the rest of them says something about his skill how good he was at this and like you it took me a long time to kind of figure out why this one was called images i mean i got the the bit with the tattoos obviously but it took me i don't know however many times i've seen this episode to start figuring out kind of like what you're talking about that it is about margaret and the the nurse and radar about what they're projecting about what images they want to project, what what their persona is. And it's all very different, but it's all about how the outside world sees you. And so I was like, you know, I think, ashamedly, I was well into my adulthood until I realized that. But once I did, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, all right, I do see this. Because sometimes MASH would do A and B plots that were very disconnected. They were just the A plot, the B plot, and they just filled up the half hour. But this... Kralutsky did manage to weave them together in a way that I think is quite effective. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I counted at least four meanings of the word images and, and, you know, and we start with an image, right? The opening scene is the picture of uh, Hendrix's arm with a huge tattoo. Which yeah. It's is, a big close up. Yeah. Yeah. Which is literally an image in the sense it's a, you know, an inked <laughs> drawing on a, on a person's appendage, but it's also, uh, a figurative image. I mean, it's an image that he's trying to project of, you know, kind of a tough guy, you know, maybe even slightly kind of menacing masculinity. Mm-hmm. But then when we meet him, he's, he's kind of this lumpy milk toast kind of quiet, <laughs> nice guy. So, yeah, you know, right. this just so you could also think of images as being stereotypes, right? So you see this and you only see the arm. So probably most people who are watching this certainly at that time are immediately jumping to some kind of stereotypical conclusion about what this guy must be like in real life. And then we meet him and it's completely opposite. So this is, this episode is all about kind of creating images and projecting images and then breaking them down. Right. Mm -hmm. It was, and and then of course, you know, the image that, 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 but some of it is they're true images. So, you know, Margaret's really tough and she's, and that's true. She is a really tough exacting professional and she projects that, and that is a true image. That's another meaning. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's it's sort of funny when you see how covered in tattoos the this GI is, because in the seventy, I mean, I'm not actually not any expert in tattoos. I don't have any or anything like that. But in the seventies, you really didn't see guys with that many tattoos. Nowadays, you see it all the time. You know, yeah. it, it wouldn't. It, you just people in business suits that have sleeves of tattoos, and you wouldn't. 
it wouldn't cause you a second glance. But it's still, I think in the 70s, it was still fairly unusual to see somebody with that many of them. And then we only even see just his arms. But I mean, the opening scene in, in OR, they're going on and on and on about the, he's got Lydia and he's got this on his chest and all this stuff. I mean, the, the guy is clearly, Hawkeye says he's literally covered in them. So yeah, that was, he, this guy was really into it kind of ahead of the curve. Eagles, anchors, women, right. ships, women. Look at Louise. <laughs> it also features, you know, we were just talking about like ancient references where one of the characters, they mentions the, the, a tattooed lady and that gets Klinger to start singing Lydia, the tattooed lady from <laughs> Groucho Marx, you know, in a Marx Brothers film. And I, you know, I would say when I was a kid, I didn't know that song. It wasn't until later on that I rented some Marx Brothers movies and understood that song. But I mean, again, it's another reference that I think for a lot of kids, you're just like, I don't know what that means. It just sounds like it's a song. Okay. You just go, you know, you just keep, you just go with it. Right. And and the dress looked nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they have this conversation. The doctors have this conversation about tattoos and, and they're, you know, Hawkeye is a Hawkeye and BJ seem admiring of them in a certain way. Uh, Potter is kind of dismissive. He says, I don't know why anyone would want that. And then of course, Winchester is looking at it from his blue bud blue blood sort of manner of saying that it's you know it's for for people that uh are trying to achieve status uh through other means that uh birth has not given them so he totally buys into the whole there are basically genetically superior people and what luck he's one of them right exactly <laughs> well and i mean that was such a charles line of uh you know kind of trying to trying to you know, put somebody down, be judgmental. And, uh, you know, I have no judgment against people who have body art, you know, do what you want to do. That's great. But I think there is like a tiny kernel of truth, um, dare I say it in Charles's, in Charles's line, which is that, you know, we do things and this is like another meaning of images or projection of an image, right? We do all of us, it's human, we do these things to try to get a validation from you know, the outside. And, you know, Charles's hubris is that he, of course, doesn't need to project anything because he's so sure of himself. And, <laughs> you know, he's got such internal validation. He doesn't need to seek it externally. But of course, we know that that's not true. And, you know, we know later in this season, he's going to have a very tender conversation with Hawkeye about some of what he projects about his family not being exactly um, all that is cracked up to be. But I think even that line from Charles, as snooty as it was, <laughs> derogatory, had, a, you know, had some, had some sort of insight about the human condition. So, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, there's a great line Potter has about where he's like, uh, I spent 30 years as a doctor, but it's always been in the military. I've never sent anyone a single bill, which is <laughs> kind of startling when you think about it. You're like, wow. Yeah. This is, this is just not a part of being a doctor that Colonel Potter has ever had to engage with. And of course, Winchester is a retort. My, my, you have missed all the fun, haven't you? Which is like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> or, the, or the line, this, this was one of my contenders, but it's not going to be my, I don't think it's going to be my winning line, but the one where, where he, Charles, I forget which scene it's in. And he's going money, money, money. And then <laughs> Hawkeye says, quiet. He's praying. Right. <laughs> I'll tell you now, that was my favorite. That's the one I picked. My favorite <laughs> line of the episode. I just love that. My, you know, I love that, that Hawkeye sort of yes ands that. He takes something and he turns it into quiet. He's praying. Uh, <laughs> so then we kind of wander into our, our B plot where BJ is performing uh, surgery and he asks the nurse for a clamp. And the nurse, uh, again, Nurse Cooper, played by actress Susan Blanchard, 
Uh, by the way, her credits include TV, a lot of TV shows like Falcon Crest, Love Boat. She was in two John Carpenter movies, They Live and Prince of Darkness, both fine films. So she must have obviously had some decent relationship with, with Mr. Carpenter. They put her in two of his movies. But she gets upset and storms off and runs out of the OR and Margaret has to fill in. And BJ has that line about her. What's with her? Well, you know, she's not working out. Some people don't have a, don't have the stomach, don't belong here. And then they have this meeting in the scrub room where Margaret rips into Cooper and, you know, is like, you can't, we cannot have this. Now, I think the show is positing that Margaret is being too tough on Cooper because later on we see the nurses try and get Hawkeye and BJ to, to, get her to lighten up and Potter certainly overrides her. I don't know. I think I'm kind of on Margaret's side on this one. Am I, am I wrong? Am I being too harsh? No, totally. I mean, I, I, I agree. I think they're trying to save lives in a very high stress (laughs) situation and with very serious injuries. And, um, uh, you know, this is, this is one of those jobs where you don't really get a do over. So, um, I mean, the way I looked at that was that it was kind of foreshadowing, um, this theme of trying to project this image of authority and control. And, and that's, what's going to, the plot is going to try to break down in Margaret. Um, but you, you kind of, you feel, I mean, I feel sorry for Cooper. And I think if we're going to stick with the images theme, um, she's one of the ones who is not really trying to project an image. She's just being very genuine and saying, mm-hmm. I'm going to do better. I'm sorry. I, you know, all, I'm new. <laughs> She's a new kid in school, I guess. She's trying to trying to find her way. Um, but but I but I do empathize with Margaret. You know that she is accountable. You know for these patients, and you know these nurses are her subordinates. Yeah, like when Cooper says he looked just like my kid brother, and I'm a little like, what did you think you were going to find at a mash unit? Like, what did you you know what I mean? Like, it's. What did you think you were going to get when you got there? It's a mobile army surgical hospital. Like, what <laughs> did you think you were going to, did you hope you were going to get put in the lab? I don't know. You know what I mean? It's a little like, yeah, you, you probably had, to, I mean, look, we all know that everybody on MASH is, is in MASH is coming from different walks of life, right? You know, Klinger is a corpsman and he was plucked out of civilian life and there is no expectation that he, you know, or say a father Mulcahy or a radar would be okay with looking at some of the viscera that they have to deal with, right? Because they're just regular people. But a nurse, it just feels a little like, you know, again, I understand the show is making a point that some people take longer to adjust and she's a good nurse. But as this, episode, and then Margaret, Margaret being Margaret, like she's braying at this poor woman. And when Loretta Swit goes into that upper register, it can be. It'd be really, really terrifying. But uh, during the whole show, I'm just sort of like, I, eh, I don't know. <laughs> I think I'm like, I don't think I don't think Margaret's. I don't think Margaret's being that unfair. I don't know. It's just like, yeah, we got to save lives. I don't have time for this. You know what are you talking about? Especially running out in the middle of an operation. Jeez. And one of the things I I kind of like, just it's a little character beat, and we'll see it in a later scene where the nurses come to the swamp and ask Hawkeye and BJ. The One of the nurses says, Cooper's having a, a rough time. And BJ says, so with the doctor she's walking out on. Yeah. And I like that. I like that as a character beat that Hawkeye's more sympathetic. But B, you can tell BJ's a little like, eh, I don't know. 
I don't know. I like. I just like that. That not everybody's on the same page. I like that he's got a little bit of a difference of opinion than Hawkeye does when it comes to this. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good point. Um, and and you know, it's not like they have a lot of extras running around. So it's it's not like you can just run out and there are five more nurses who can just come. Yeah, and right. Save the patient. It's right. I, I mean, I have I have sympathy. I couldn't do that job, so I have been. No, sympathy. yeah, no. I mean, never. Yeah, obviously, I wouldn't. Right. I mean, and they even underscored that in the last episode of season five, where Penobscot gets to watch Margaret work, and he can't handle it. He's a yeah. combat veteran, and even he gets upset because of the the sheer just you know grossness of the work that they, his wife has to do. So I get all that, but it's yeah, it's it, it reminds me a little bit again of the. Fallen Idol episode where the I feel like the show is more on radar side, and I've always just been kind of like I don't know, <laughs> you know, a little thing a little bit different than than the show. But now they un they kind of underscore it a little bit about how tough Margaret can be in the very next scene where she sees Klinger feeding the camp mutt, and Klinger is being nice to the dog. He's giving him a tray full of food, and you could see that Margaret likes the dog. You know, like she bends down and she's, you know, scratching its ears or whatever, and it's responding to her. But then she kind of is going back to being Margaret and is like, this is against regulations. You got to get him out of here and stuff like that. And so they're kind of, I don't want to say they're overdoing it, but they're having those scenes back to back. I think it makes the scene with Cooper seem harsher than it is because you're like, wow, Margaret's just being tough on everybody. She's even being tough to a little dog. Yeah. And, but remember where she's at in this season, right? So her, there's, haven't we just learned that her marriage may be on the rocks and right. this thing that she's always wanted and it's come off and she's hardly married. And, you know, she, I think she must be feeling sort of vulnerable. And I think when you're vulnerable in one area of your life, you kind of put extra focus on some other area or you try mm-hmm. to control other areas of your life because you can't control one of them. And so um, you know, to, to be fair to Margaret, but this is what MASH does, right? It creates this kind of moral ambiguity. And, and I'm actually with you on the radar Hawkeye episode. I thought, I thought we were, I thought radar, everybody was too hard on Hawkeye then too, mm-hmm. but you can really see people having a, an interesting argument, probably through the, their own lens of, you know, we can all see ourselves in any of these places, maybe not in an army tent, but um, you know, these, these are kind of universal <laughs> universal human experiences mm-hmm, mm-hmm. feeling let down or feeling like you're in con- you have to be in control of something and everything is going haywire and you know but but with margaret and, and in this context it's life and death it's not like most of our jobs where if something gets out of control it's fixable right um, but right and the, i guess the thing is with margaret and the dog you're like okay i get like you're just kind of enforcing regulations for the sake of enforcing regulations because giving the dog scraps from the mess tent first of all you could argue that's even being cruel to the dog considering how bad the (laughs) mess tent food is but you know what i mean like that's just margaret being strict for just the sake of being strict yeah it's one it's one thing to get on cooper because she feels like she's keep you know saving lives but we you know giving the dog some extra slop what's the (laughs) what's the what's the problem come on and that is i mean i would definitely would have been clinger in that situation because I know you have animals. I have animals. I'm a big animal person. So anytime there's some, I will, I will violate any rule possible if it means I can help the welfare of some animal that needs it. So yeah. I would definitely be like, I would, I would have been like, yes, yes, Major Hulan, yes. And then I would pick the dog up and feed it in my own tent or something. We didn't know Klinger has his own tent. We know that anyway. So I would just, 
I would just adopt the dog quietly. I'd be like, right. yeah, right. I'm not, I'm not letting. Well, you. and we know she does. She does exactly right. That, right? And she does exactly that. We'll find out. Absolutely. Um, so now we're in the swamp, and as I mentioned, two of the nurses, Brigalow and I think Baker, played by uh, uh, Enid Kent and Judy Farrell. I think Judy Farrell tended to play different nurses. They, they gave her different names. Uh, unfortunately, as of this recording, Judy Farrell just passed away just a couple of weeks ago. And so uh, rest in peace, Judy Farrell. She was one of the kind of regular nurses. We would see her intermittently all the way through the rest of the show. And then she has her own little moment in the goodbye, farewell, and amen. So it's another loss of the MASH family, unfortunately. But here they make a plea to Hawkeye and BJ to say, hey, look, can you, you know, lean on Margaret a little bit? where Cooper's is going through her own baptism of fire and they say, you know, whatever. And it's sort of funny, the idea that um, they think that Hawkeye and BJ are going to be able to like tilt Margaret in a certain direction, you know? <laughs> and that's just something about, we think about that. That's the change in these characters that this might work at all because just one season previous, it would have no effect at all. You know, Margaret's not going to listen to anything Hawkeye and BJ have to say, but it's only because they've gotten together a little bit close. They've gotten a little closer here that it might work, but you can imagine like try the, try showing the scene in like season three it would never happen because Margaret's not going to have no interest in listening to Hawkeye for any reason. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. I hadn't even thought of that. Why didn't they just go to Potter directly? But uh, they and I, 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 you know, we t- we talked about this season six, or I think season six at least is a kind of a transitional season. And you know, one of the things that it's moving along is the closeness of Hawkeye and and Margaret, and and they're kind of coming to see themselves more as equals and operate more as supportive colleagues, teammates, and so forth. And so maybe this is you know kind of a, a way of of mm, indi- you know of indicating that the that Hawkeye might have some moral suasion or BJ as well um, over, over Margaret for sure. Uh, So then we're, we're go to, we go to um, the mess tent where uh, Winchester joins Margaret and she's immediately sort of uncomfortable because they are sitting there together and she's sort of doesn't want anyone to think it it looks untoward. And Winchester's kind of tweaking her a little bit. He's kind of got this grin through the whole time and he's sort of playing dumb. Like, what, what are you talking, you know, what, would anybody think anything? And she even says, maybe we should join the others. What others? We're alone. And she's like, you know how these people talk. And he's kind of flirting with her. And at one point, he leans very heavily over her shoulder. And he's like, why should two people eating together be the subject of gossip? And she's clearly uncomfortable. And she <laughs> she says, Major, we stop whispering. Why? She says, because I want them to hear that we aren't saying anything. And... <laughs> Winchester says, we aren't saying anything. And she goes, that's what I want them to hear, which I feel like should be concluded with third base. It has that same kind of rhythm to it of just kind of nonsensical words that these two are doing. And they, they, they play it really well, both Loretta Swit and David Ogden Styers. They do. And I, I didn't, at first, I didn't really find this part of the plot all that persuasive. I'm just like, would really anybody, I know we've talked about, and, you know, Charles is still kind of new and, you know, was there going to be some, are they going to get together somehow or is are the writers kind of playing around with that possibility? And, and maybe that's what this was about. They're still, the writers are still trying to, or, you know, producers are still trying to figure out if, if there's going to be something between Margaret and Charles. But uh, I didn't, I don't know. I, 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 I sort of thought what it was trying to advance was this idea of, again, of like, 
projection of images and stereotypes. And, you know, so maybe the, the stereotype in the fifties at least was that if a man, a married woman and a man, a single man are sitting next to each other and talking and there's nobody else at the table, there must be something going on. And maybe she's trying to uphold this image of like the faithful wife and, you know, married, good married women don't have <laughs> lunch with single men or something. <laughs> maybe that's, maybe that's what this was about. Um, I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really think anybody seriously believed that they would be getting together, but that may be just because I've seen the show all the mm-hmm. way through and we know that they don't. So I feel like they're still, even at this point, nine episodes into the season, they are still uh, flirting with the flirting and that they're still maybe kind of suggesting that Winchester might have a thing because after you know, after they have this, that kind of back and forth, Mulcahy sits down, Hawkeye and BJ sit down. They, they get, they kind of get in Margaret's face about, why don't you lay off Cooper? She storms off. And then after she, she walks off, Winchester watches her leave and he goes, rather spirited woman. Yeah. And you're like, wow, he looks like he's like, uh, kind of, uh, sweet on her a little bit. And after this, they kind of would drop it. But even at this point, they're still kind of, you know, a little bit getting into it. Like they're still maybe suggesting that there's some attraction there. Yeah. He does uh, yeah. have a little devilish grin when he says, yeah. I, agree yeah. With you. Yeah. I love he has the line about the, the yeah, about how bad the food is. And he says, they don't even chill the salad forks here, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, you're like, boy, man, you <laughs> wait till you see what, what's coming for you, buddy. <laughs> All right. Non chilled salad forks is a thing worth commenting on for the, for Pete's sakes. You think we have uh, forks? Yeah, I mean, like what? <laughs> you're lucky. If you're you're lucky you get utensils at all. So uh, now we're in uh, we're in post op, and Radar shows up, and he talks to this GI who we saw apparently has all the tattoos. That actor is play is a guy named Larry Block. He passed away in 2012. He had really uh, some amazing movie credits. He was in After Hours by Martin Scorsese, Slapshot with Paul Newman, and My Blue Heaven with Steve Martin. So again, he had a bunch of other really. Uh, you know, really solid movie credits. But Radar comes to him and talks about, I saw all the tattoos. Some of them have been hurt because of the stitches. He's like, which tattoo got clobbered? Oh, Louise. Oh, no, not Louise. And they go back and forth. And, you know, Radar says he wants to get a tattoo. And this is when the GI says, you know, you look tough. And there's this and there's that. And the women won't leave you alone. And then Radar's like, that's it. And he gets, he gets up and he walks out. So obviously... That he radar is, you know, you talk about images more than anything else. He has an image of what a guy with a tattoo is like, what his life is like, and he thinks that is a a magnet to women. And obviously, you know, he's not he's not really comfortable around women, so therefore, the tattoo is going to do it for him. Right, and and that's his kind of image projection. So you know, he he's this kind of sweet male company clerk and you know he's he wants to be a kind of masculine guy or adhere to what I I think a lot of this is just what what kinds of projections or images of ourselves we think the context whether it's society or you know our our job or whatever expects of us and you know you kind of see radar and we know that in the next season he's going to leave and become the patriarch of the farm and Atumwa, Iowa, right? So he has to kind of grow up in quotes in this season. And, you know, I, I see these two things as kind of intertwined that, that he's trying to, he, he's, 
he wants to get a tattoo because you look tough, you feel great, and women won't leave you alone. And he thinks that's what a man is supposed to be. And Hmm. the tattoo is the ticket to, you know, masculinity. And and he wants to project that. And he'll project that literally and figuratively with his, you know, body art. So uh, that, yeah, that's, that's how I read the, you know, his curiosity about it was that it was a kind of um, a, a step on this developmental road to being, you know, a quote unquote real man or what a real, what we imagine a real man is supposed to be in the army. Right. Right. At least what radar perceives as a real man. Yeah. Uh, it is worth noting that, you know, Gary Berghoff, especially this season is, is absent entirely from episodes and because we know that that was something he worked into his contract that he wanted more time off. So when they give him something to do, he gets a whole plot line as opposed to just appearing in two scenes being radar. He, you know, when he's in an episode like this one, it's focused around him, uh, which is, you know, probably as an actor, probably feeling like is more useful, you know, more worthy of his time that he's getting, you know, more to do. Um, so as Radar exits the scene, we see Nurse Cooper examining a, a patient and she takes a moment where she looks kind of disgusted or not disgusted, but upset. And, and she kind of pauses and looks away. And unfortunately, that's right at the moment that Margaret walks in and Margaret has her relieved. She says she talks to uh, another nurse named Campbell, who does not is not uh, credited because she doesn't get any lines. She tells Campbell to relieve Cooper. And she takes her out and she basically says, I'm relieving you permanently. And they have this conversation in post-op, which seems, I don't know, vaguely a little unprofessional to have this conversation in front of all the patients. But okay. But she says, I'm transferring you out next week. And she's like, I'm sorry. That's it. That's it. And then... um the very patient that the that Cooper was working on, that Campbell's working on. Oh, by the way, I'm sorry. The nurse Campbell does have a line. She says, Major, I need help here. Uh, Margaret goes and helps out and leaves Cooper just sort of standing there, uh, sort of flustered and realizing she has no, you know, she has no recompense uh, to Margaret. And she starts to cry. And that's the end of the act break. And uh, we leave her just kind of like, all right, I guess uh, Cooper's out. And then we come right back to... In Act Two, we're in Potter's office where he's reading the note from Margaret saying that she should be transferred immediately. And Margaret, Mar- excuse me, Potter has his thing says uh, he reads it out loud and he says, "You're one, you're one Lollapalooza major." And before we get to that scene of where Mar- he's going to deal with Margaret, he's talking to uh, Radar about the tattoos. And I love they have that line. He says, "What do you think of ta- what do you think of uh, what do you think about getting a tattoo?" Potter says, why do I need one? <laughs> Which I think is a great, yeah. <laughs> it's a great bit. But they have this little conversation about uh, get a Panther or a Marie. And we see that it's so funny that Radar's insecurity is such that someone that he idolizes, like Colonel Potter, Colonel Potter says, leave the tattoos to the Navy. And he's basically telling Radar, don't bother with this, but he won't listen. That's how insecure he is. You would think that Potter telling him not to do it would probably be enough because he respects Colonel Potter so much. Right. That, that we, we, um, in the, in Potter's attempts to, uh, talk him out of, talk Radar out of a tattoo, I think you had one of the funnier lines in the, in the show, still not going to be my funniest, but where he says, Something like, you know, they're dumb. You know, I knew somebody who put his girlfriend's chest face on his chest and then he sprouted chest hair and turned it into the bearded lady. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are some 
really, really funny lines in this episode. Uh, and but yeah, I mean, really good point about why isn't he listening to Potter and and you know, and Margaret really isn't listening to Potter either, right? She's mm-hmm. saying, you know, these are my nurses, it's my call, and you know, he has to pull rank on her, which doesn't happen very often, I think. Um, but you know, but he, ha- but he's also being avuncular and he's being the man of experience and he's, you know, he's the one who's been in the military for decades and knows that people, people can grow in their jobs, just like Mrs. Potter, who used to be a cry- crier. Grew <laughs> she was a crier. Yeah. She's been a mighty fine <laughs> wife for 38 years or whatever. I've <laughs> a few tears get in my way. <laughs> he does, he has, you know, Potter, but by, by the dint of his experience, as a, an anecdote for every possible situation. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of the same thing that they would do on the Golden Girls with Stel Getty, which she would picture this, Sicily. You know, she always had some, some story to tell that related to the plot of whatever that episode was. And they just, that was a well they never, that never ran dry. And so yeah, you could always have Potter have some, you know, I have a friend who got a tattoo, got her girlfriend tattooed on shit. They turned it into the bearded lady. Like, oh, that sounds awful, you know? <laughs> These are like an extension of the Potterisms, you know, like horse yeah. hockey. You know, he's got the whole like narrative, uh, you know, version of that. With yeah, mm-hmm. has a story. He has a story about a guy who gets a tattoo. I mean, whatever. It's <laughs> yeah. not a story for everything, as you said. Yeah, whatever the situation, he's got a he's got a story ready to to help you yeah, out. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, and so uh, later on, we see outside the mess tent. We see Margaret feeding the little dog. So she's feeding the dog herself and she's kind of doing it on the on the sly although she's doing it like right in the middle of the campground so it's not like she's trying to hide it necessarily um radar finds margaret and says that colonel potter wants to see you he asks if colonel penobscot has any tattoos which margaret takes as like it's kind of a weird question to ask about my husband's body you pervert and then we go to potter's office and potter says request denied she stays and all credit to Loretta Swit and Harry Morgan for this scene. We know how much these two love each other. We know how quickly they have bonded, that they look at each other like a father and daughter. But Margaret, I should say, not Margaret, Loretta Swit, Loretta Swit brings real heat to this scene. Like she is genuinely putting across that as Margaret, she's pissed off. She is pissed off at Potter for overruling her now of course she respects the chain of command he's the colonel yes she's in charge of the nurses but he's in charge of the whole unit so she's going to do what he says because she has to but i like that uh that loretta swit gives this scene a just a little bit of an extra edge to it where she is genuinely like you're wrong and i'm gonna raise my voice at you and i'm gonna go along with what you tell me because i have to but you're wrong and it's a really great seen between these two and it's i think there's a lot of kind of gendered aspects to this episode and actually to mass in general and in this season in particular but you know i think as a you know if you are a professional woman you've had that experience and you know normally you know usually statistically your superiors are going to be more male than female and you know a feeling that you're overruled on something that you know best you have authority over you have it's your domain and having sort of a superior even if that person is allowed you know it's in the you know it's in the chain of command they're allowed to overrule you or whatever you know that it's it's a very it's it's a very it's very tempting to want to stand up for yourself and be the the master of your own kind of your own domain and um i 
I, I, you know, I, re- I actually really respected her for that. She didn't just give in because she had to, because that's the chain of command. Um, she, 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 she was really, there was some really strong acting in, I mean, there always is, but I, Loretta Swit, I really saw maybe, you know, maybe because they were, it was less of an ensemble episode and more really kind of driven by two characters, but they, their acting skills were really allowed to pop. And this is a, a great example of that in the case of Loretta Swit. Yeah, I mean, one of the criticisms I've heard of MASH over the years is that in later seasons, uh, in fact, it was even, I think this was even a criticism lobbed at the show from Jim Fritzell and Everett Greenbaum, you know, two two people who knew a lot about writing MASH and writing the best of MASH said that they thought the show, if I can remember, I, I don't mean to butcher the quote if I'm not remembering it correctly, but I think their criticism of the show in later seasons was everyone became too damn nice. And I think that's a a genuine criticism you can lob at the show as, as the characters became just more friendly to one another, especially again in, in the later seasons. But I like that at least here that, yeah, we don't have Frank anymore. So we don't have quite the, 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 the you know, the villain of the show that we used to have, but I like that they don't just make this scene, you know, kind of like lukewarm water. It's like, all right, they disagree. And okay. But when, when she says, I'll give her a chance if that's in order. And he says, then it's in order. And he says, ease up on the girl. And she says, oh, of course, Colonel. Lord knows I wouldn't want to do anything to upset her. And she storms out. And it is really like, I, you know, Potter takes it because he's the he's the commander. But she she kind of slams his door as much as she can uh, as she walks out. And he says to nobody in particular, thank you, Major. I knew you'd understand. But I, I like that. I really like the the energy that she, she brings to it. And, yeah, in the previous season in um, – the nurses episode where there's that whole bit going on about the nurse sneaking out and Potter gets wind of it. And he basically goes to Margaret and Margaret says, I'll, you know, this is between me and my nurses. And he kind of is like, well, okay, you're in charge of the nurses. I'll lay off. But here he's not doing that. It's interesting. It's, you know, there's, you can make an argument one way or the other, like, you know what? I think Potter's right. Or I think Margaret's right. Margaret, Margaret is dealing with her more directly and Potter even says, if it happens again, I'll personally throw her bags on the Jeep. And, you know, there, I think there really is genuinely argued to be made bo- on both sides about uh, well, how they I, feel about this. And I don't want to stretch that um, 407 7th as high school metaphor too much. <laughs> um, but, you know, you can also imagine. So Potter's the principal. Margaret's the teacher. The nurses are her class. Mm. Teachers do not like it when the principal uh, or the school board tells them how to teach. Or tells them what they can teach or what they can't teach or what, you know, what grading systems they need to use or whatnot. Um, and I, you know, I can really understand that, you know, these are her charges. She is responsible for them. She is responsible for, uh, you know, ensuring their, that they are doing their jobs, that they're doing so in an orderly fashion. And here's Potter, the principal, sort of saying, no, sorry, uh, you know, cha- you have to change the grade. I, I know you, I know you think that that student deserves an F, but I think you need to, you know, give, give her a gentleman's or gentlewoman's C or, or an A or, or a redo or something like that. And, you know, I don't think any, any teacher would like, would appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally, I, I think it's great. It's a really, it's a really fine moment between the, between the two of them. So then we're in the swamp and there's kind of a little bit of a placeholder scene where uh, Hawkeye and BJ are reading like a newspaper and Winchester's sitting there reading a book. And it says here, said, or Hawkeye's reading out loud. He says here, it says here, MacArthur 
took a little walk with Truman on the beach of Wake Island. By the way, in a previous episode in season four, they already talked about that MacArthur had been already been replaced by Truman because Truman, of course, fired MacArthur during this war. But here he's back in back in power. So again, the timeline of MASH is just <laughs> completely cattywampus, as they say. <laughs> But uh, they do this little bit where they talk to, you know, want to go invade China, have to go in all alone. And they're just kind of joking back and forth. And then you get Winchester say, I do hope that you two vaudevillians realize that you're slanding one of the greatest military minds of the century. And Hawkeye's like, Truman? And Winchester says, Makatha. And he says, uh, when will you? He says, you two are infuriating. When will you concede how much MacArthur has done for us? Okay, <laughs> this scene feels like a placeholder from the Frank Burns era of MASH. And I don't mean that literally, like that they had the scene and they kept, you know, they wrote it for season five and they kept it for season six. But I think it's been, a, I think they're still figuring out Winchester, right? Uh, yeah. I do not believe for one moment, Winchester, forgive my my language, I don't think Winchester gives a shit about the military. Right. At all. At all. His exactly. concern is his is his own life, his money. He ha- probably has almost no opinion of Mac- Yes, they've established that he's a Republican, you know, that he's definitely on the conservative side of things. But I don't believe that Winchester thinks about military actions in any way. So the feeling that he would have any opinion on MacArthur is like, that's a Frank Burns scene. That's a, This yeah. is what Frank Burns would say to these two. Winchester would never, he doesn't care does not care yeah i think that's a that's a really good point and 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 you know so you have to wonder if it's just that they have to banter yeah so if if hawkeye and bj are you know making fun of macarthur then you know charles's job is to stick up for macarthur just Mm -hmm. to be Mm -hmm. oppositional um but but i agree yeah he's he's not a and, and this i you know and i'm not exactly sure even how political the dismissal was uh True, I guess MacArthur was insubordinate and Truman fired him. Um, but I, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think that it's not that convincing, but it was still a fun scene. And the corn cob pipeline was funny. Oh, yeah. It's a funny scene. The, the, the interplay between the three of them is great. I mean, no doubt. But it's just so, I'm just like, every, even when I was a kid and I was like, wait, huh? Like, I don't think Winchester cares. His view of politics is, does it affect his money? Correct. That's 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 the level of politics is, that he's engaged with. What is the marginal tax rate, and how can I? That, exactly. That is that is. He looks at he looks at politicians as things to own, <laughs> and what go. they will do for him. That is, you know, I mean, he he'd be if he was out today, he'd be out buying Supreme Court judges. I mean, that's the way Winchester kind of works. So it's just they had like thirty seconds to kill, and they were like, "Let's give them some banter." And okay, let's talk about something current events. That's fine. Right. Well, yeah, they had to. Then they had to set up the scene where, or the scenes where, um, you know, along the lines of what we were talking about with Margaret and Potter, that uh, the the there has to be this kind of tension between Radar and the Doctors, all right. three of them, over uh the tattoo and so i guess they ha- i guess they had to argue over macarthur because they're going to be in they're going to be aligned over the t- tattoo issue that makes sense that makes sense so yeah radar comes in talks about the tattoos winchester it, it's funny hawkeye and bj are are at this point staunchly anti-tattoo you know they're like no don't do it and winchester is he's not really against it but he's dismissive of it like he's just like well this is kind of what the plebes do 
But go ahead, you know, because he doesn't care about radar either. But in some weird, perverse way, he's kind of for it, uh, you know, in his in his own in his own way, because he's kind of like, well, all right, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's what that's what the little farm boy would do to get status. But Hawkeye and BJ are trying to look out for him, and they're like, you know, look, let us let us at least be there to make sure that it's antiseptic and you know it's clean. And you know, you got to figure that. And even Hawkeye says, you know, sorry, no more needling. Oh, it just slipped out, da, 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 you know, whatever. And, you know, you got to figure that, yeah, getting a tattoo in the back of Rosie's bar, probably not the cleanest place yeah, in the world. So. That that line, that no more needling line, that was when <laughs> the first time I noticed that I think Mike Farrell is genuinely laughing at that line. <laughs> he, he didn't look like he was laughing because he's supposed to be laughing as an actor. He looked like he really thought that was funny. And and this is, a, this is the other scene where... Um, where Radar kind of articulates this idea of kind of projecting his idea of what masculinity is supposed to be. So he says something like, I'm tired of being a nobody. I want to be the object of respect, fear, and sex. <laughs> and Which, you know, is is probably exactly what, what a stereotypical kind of tattooed army guy, you know, you, those are probably words you would associate with, with that kind of a stereotypical man. Mm-hmm. And so again, going to the images, this is, you know, he's really articulating, this is the image that I want to project. Fear, <laughs> respect, and somebody who's going to have a lot of sex. <laughs> I want to be the object of fear, respect, and sex. <laughs> but he says it so innocently that it's really not that persuasive. <laughs> he talks He talks about women and sex the way uh, Steve Carell did in The 40-Year-Old Virgin. So uh, now later on in the post-op, we see Cooper is being shadowed by Margaret and Margaret informs her that uh, you're not being transferred out. Says, I guess he's an old softy. And she says, he can afford to be. He doesn't work with you as closely as I do. But she says, you know, and, and it's, Margaret's kind of really contrary to what I said earlier. I think she's being a little mean to Cooper at this point. Because she's she's basically saying, you're going to fail again. And you're going to fail in front of Potter. And when he sees that, then I'm like, boy, you're really kind of like stacking the deck <laughs> against her a little bit. You're like... Geez, you know, okay, I know you're angry, but I don't know. Maybe you don't want to like tell her you're a failure, Cooper, and I know you're going to fail again. Like Mar- Margaret is pissed. You know how sometimes when you, people come down really hard on others for the things they're most insecure about in themselves, and so we know that you know Margaret's, uh, as I mentioned before. So Mark, we know Margaret's marriage is on the rocks. Her husband may be cheating on her, her new husband. There's, she's trying to sort of maintain order in chaos. And, you know, Cooper is just raw. She's vulnerable. She's crying. She's admitting she's, you know, still learning the ropes. She's going to try harder. She's just very raw. And I think like if, if you're feeling raw yourself, you're going to lash out at people who are, again, <laughs> projecting what you're most vulnerable about. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, and I completely agree with you. I think, you know, she's making a public example, but I think in normal, if, if Margaret were more kind of even keeled, I think she would handle it more the way that HR does, you know, <laughs> doors, you know, certain warnings. I mean, they must have, it's the mar- army. There must be procedures for this. And I'm sure like dressing down a nurse in front of ailing patients in a recovery room is not in the manual. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's, there's something, there's something about, Cooper's vulnerability and rawness and tenderness that feels threatening to Margaret because she's trying to keep it together so hard herself. And the, and the dog is the, you know, her sweet spot for the dog and feeding the dog and the attachment to the dog is kind of the, the hint that that's kind of what's going on with her. Yeah. 
after the uh, season five souvenirs episode where Potter sits Margaret down and says, you know, people of your uh, background tend to get drunk and fight more. I'm like, there's clearly no HR department here at the 477. This is the same things you really couldn't get away with. And so, um, so, uh, Nurse Cooper promises, uh, Margaret that, uh, that's not going to happen again. I'm not going to fail again. Going forward, I'm going to be as tough and unfeeling as you are. And there's this hold on Margaret for a full beat. And we know that's gotten to her. That's that that stung a little bit the way that, that Cooper says that, that she looks at Margaret like that, that Margaret is unfeeling. And, you know, that's an easy mistake to make that Margaret is unfeeling. You're like, no, it's not that I'm unfeeling. It's that I control it. That's different than not feeling at all. But that's what you're talking about, again, with the, the theme of images. That's what Cooper sees from right. Margaret is that you are unfeeling. You don't care. And it's like, no, of course I care. I care a lot. And that's what makes me be so under control. You know, that's what's going on here. Then we're in Rosie's bar and uh, Radar decides to not have a grape knee. Hi, he orders a beer. Guys with tattoos drink beer. So again, images, you know, <laughs> he's a little kids don't drink, uh, don't drink grape knee. I don't know. I'm, I'm in my fifties. I still, still drink chocolate milk. I'm just not worried about those things. So uh, <laughs> they decide. It's the stereotype, right? The stereotype yeah. The guy, you know, a guy with tattoos is going to be a big guy. He's going to drink beer, not Pinot Noir or Grape Meat. You know, it's a stereotype. And then he says, like, guys with tattoos don't hang out with guys like me. Again, okay, that's high school, right? Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 the jocks don't hang out with the science students. Right. <laughs> right. I would like to see someone order a Pinot Noir at Rosie's Bar, by the way. That would be really funny. That might be my um, yeah. tattoo, you know. <laughs> So uh, Hawkeye and BJ uh, open the floor for anyone that has a tattoo. And there's a guy who says, what do you want to know, pal? This is uh, it's a sergeant. Is The actor's name is John Duran. He passed away in 2003. He was in stuff like Chips, Wonder Woman. He was in the Nick Nolte movie, Who'll Stop the Rain. My favorite credit of his was one appearance in an episode of the show called David Cassidy, Man Undercover, which is just one of the great names for any tv show ever in history i've never seen it i was gonna say as a child of the 70s how did i miss that yeah dan david cassidy man undercover that with that show deserves a podcast uh one little thing i would want to mention about mr duran that i saw on his imdb page i think it was worth mentioning it says he was cited for heroism by the los angeles los angeles county for his involvement in saving the life of a 13 year old boy near hermosa beach the boy had swept been swept offshore by a riptide Duran swam out to the boy and brought him back to the pier pilings where he held on to him until he was rescued. Good on you, John Duran. <laughs> that's great. Wow. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. So anyway, uh, Radar talks to the sergeant about his tattoos, and we see that uh, this the sergeant has them all. He's got he's got them on his arms and stuff like that. And then he orders instead of a beer, a grape knee high. And of course, Radar is like, "When are you ordering a grape knee high?" And he says, uh, "Why? Because of kind of my mother. What?" She promised you wouldn't drink. No, she gave me hepatitis. And he starts showing all these tattoos and talks about that he got hepatitis from a dirty needle. And he says, I can't drop another liquid, another beer in six months. And he says, if hepatitis don't get you, that stuff pointing to grip knee high will. And so obviously he is tells the kid, don't get anything. Don't get any, don't get any tattoos. And Hawkeye and Beach are playing dumb. I don't know you guys, right? Yeah. He says, forget the, de- forget, forget the disease, forget the pain. And he says, 
you're going to meet a nice girl and she's going to be crazy about you. And then you're going to roll up your sleeve and she's going to see the tattoo. She's going to see that stupid tattoo and the twinkle in her eye is going to go right out the window, which is like, it's kind of overdoing it a little bit. I mean, I, I mean, everybody's different, but I don't know. I think, think that if a woman likes radar enough to, to get that chummy with him, I don't think a tattoo is not going to be the thing that ends it, but I don't, well, I don't know. A guy with a mama or mother on his arm. I don't know. That, that might be a red flag for, for okay. <laughs> you know, and then radar decides in that moment, okay, I'm not going to get a tattoo. Uh, forget it. And then Clear walks in and ruins it. And he says, hi, sorry, glad you found him. He was looking all over for you guys. And all of them were like, nah, ixnay. And you can see um, BJ waving his hands. And he realizes that the whole thing was a setup. And they're talking about, we're just trying to save your skin. And then, of course, the tattoo guy says, O'Reilly. And he's, yeah, I'm going to get a snake, I think. And uh, Hawkeye ends the scene. He says, uh, BJ says, uh, Klinger, you're next. Fingers like me. He says, yeah, we're going to tattoo a zipper on your mouth. Yeah. And just, you know, just as we were talking about, this is an example of where Radar just thumbs his nose at his superiors at the two, you know, captains. And uh, just as Margaret stood up to the colonel. Right. Uh, and and I think that's a question, you know, would that would that have happened in an earlier episode? Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, Radar is really trying to come out come into his own as a man, I think, in this episode. And he has to because next season, right, he's going to have to be the man of the property, uh, the patriarch of the family. So, yeah, just these little things. And you just don't see the teddy bear anymore except as a tattoo. But the real teddy bear we don't see. And, yeah, it's – um, Yeah, yeah, totally. So then we're follow uh, – we're we're go to the um, mess tent – where we see a bunch of the nurses talking again. It's Nurse Bigelow. Again, this is, this is her big season, season six, Nurse Bigelow and uh, Baker. And we actually see Campbell again, and they're talking. And Baker says, I'm collecting scraps for the puppy. And they say, didn't you hear? She was killed. He was killed this morning. How ran in front of a Jeep. And we see that their conversation is overheard by Margaret. And we rack in, rack focus in on her. And we see that she is devastated we could see that she is doing everything she can to not cry in public and she is and and all everything on on loretta switz face and to the point where she jumps up walks out of the mess tent she crosses hawkeye's path and he of course notices immediately that she's upset and she she tries to hold it in but she can't and she's like excuse me please and she's kind of got this like low guttural voice and much like uh, the scene with Colonel Potter, uh, I think Loretta Swift brings some real grit and tension to this scene where he's trying to be nice to her. She's not interested. And he even follows her into her tent and she says, get out. And again, she brings a real kind of, but again, I keep saying grit, but real grit to it. Like she's genuinely pissed, like get the hell out of my tent. And it's only because Hawkeye is, as close to Margaret as he is at this point in season six, that he can get away with this, that he is like, no, I'm not leaving that. Cause you could see Margaret to just deck him, you know? Um, and of course, you know, Hawkeye knows something's wrong where she says, you know, there's random dogs getting, getting run over by Jeeps. And even here, you hear him say dogs, like even he's sort of confused. And this is just a tremendous scene for doing these two actors. Yeah, it is amazing. And we, we should talk about the puppy. I think we should talk about the puppy. So, uh, 
you know, I, I have a policy that if animals are gratuitously killed in any movie or television show, I turn it off. Mm. And so I'm, I was kind of surprised by it. That I actually picked this episode. Yeah, yeah really. Of all the yeah, ones to like, pick, what was I thinking? Christine, you picked the one where the dog dies. In. I know. What was I thinking? But I, I think that the, the puppy is really, really key as a kind of plot device. And I, I, you know, I just, I think it's, it's serving as kind of, you know, a, a device for kind of breaking down this image of authority and control. And I've got it all together. I am major Hulan. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a device for breaking down that image. But I also, you know, we also think about like, where's, and I mentioned this before, where is Margaret in, on her path? And, you know, we know where I, I won't do any spoilers because I know you haven't probably taped this episode yet, but, you know, we know later in this um, season, we're going to learn that Margaret has, uh, uh, how do I say this? Can I have spoilers? <laughs> we learned, I think we learned, that, yeah, we, learned, we learned that she's not pregnant, right? She thinks she's pregnant. We learned she's not pregnant. And it's very poignant because she seems both relieved, but also a little sad. And, you know, you think about a woman who's newly married in the 50s, you know, kids are probably going to be in the on the table, at least as a discussion. And, and, you know, maybe this puppy is kind of a stand in for this thing that's missing, right? This, this little one to care for. And, um, you know, it's, and, and, and I think it's also, a, it's the puppy also is a device for um, just what the, the hardship that all of these folks, the, the tragedies that they have to sort of view every day. So when the nurses are talking about, Oh, didn't you hear he got run over and they seem sad, but it was almost kind of nonchalant the way they yeah. news and, you know, Hawkeye, you know, look, you know, a dog died. I mean, they all, it's like, they're the ones who are being kind of hard and she's the one who's being soft, Margaret. The others are all just, you know, well, things happen and you know, this, you know, it's sad, but well, whatever. I'm going to go paint my nails and wash my hair. And, um, you know, and Margaret is just devastated. So again, like, what is this, what is this dog? This dog is a device for telling us something about Margaret. She's the outlier in, in all of this. Everybody else is like, yeah, this is tragic. It's really sad. He was a sweet dog, but Hey, we're in the, we're in a war. But for Margaret, it's this devastating event. Um, uh, so I put up with watching this and I, and they handled it really well. Like we didn't see the event. We just learned about it after the fact. So I'll give them a pass on this one. Yeah, it's 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 a nice way of showing that something can get to you in a way that you wouldn't expect when on paper it it shouldn't. You know what I mean? Or like other things that might seem more significant don't get you know, don't get to you in a yeah. weird way. You know what I mean? And 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 that's why I always feel like it's such folly for humans to try and guess what other humans are going to do. Cause it's I like a lot of time. We can't, we can't even figure out what we're going to do. You know, we don't even know what, what our reaction are going to be to something, let alone someone else's reaction. Right, and exactly. you know, it's awkward. It's awkward to mention, but I, I think about in this moment where, and I don't know what this says about me or whatever, but like, uh, you know, like I've had, I've had pets die suddenly on me. And I, I had my, my beloved cat passed away a couple of years ago, unexpectedly. And it, 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 I cried uncontrollably that day. I mean, just absolutely. And yet I've had one of my siblings has passed away and I didn't cry in that moment. You know what I mean? Like it upset me, but it, it didn't, I didn't, I didn't, wasn't turned, I wasn't, uh, turned into a sobbing mess when one of my siblings died, but yet this cat that I cared for and kept alive for 10 years 
died suddenly on me, I was inconsolable yeah. for several days. You know, and you would think on some in some probably to some people, you'd be like, well, that's weird. That's backward. You know, a, a human that you were raised with didn't inspire you to to cry. But this animal did. But that's that's the way people are. You know, you can't you can't guess these things, right. you know. Um, and so I love that when, you know, Hawkeye says, look, I saw you were feeding that dog you, this morning. He got run over. You're trying to tell me you're not upset by that. And she's got that great line where she yells. I've got people dying all around me. And like, you know, like, she's just like, that's my data point. You know, you think I'd get upset over a dog and it's like, no, it doesn't make sense. But yet that's where we are. That's where we are. And she just breaks down. And again, it's Loretta Swit, man, just bringing it, just, yeah, <laughs> just totally bringing it, bringing it in this episode. And I love that she turns away from Hawkeye, even though she's sobbing. And Hawkeye just hugs her. And I love that he kind of hugs her from behind, which is like the most he's going to get out of her. You know what I mean? Like she's not going to turn. She's not going to embrace him where she's putting her head on her, on, on his chest. It's that's the most it's going to be. It's just a terrific scene between these two. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The, the way he, um, yeah, the angle with which he kind of hugged her struck me too, that kind of big brother, I'm going to still give you space, but I'm also going to give you comfort and, you don't need to totally break down, but just know I'm here. I'm standing with yeah. you. And I, I had this, you're, you'll know the episode number because you are a, a mash encyclopedia, but uh, the, the puppy is a stand in too for innocence, I think. And this actually reminded me of the episode where it's Aaron Honeycutt's birthday and BJ can't be there and he's all upset. So they throw the birthday party for the orphan. My mm-hmm. right? You know, that, so that, that, then she'll, I mean, there have been a number of kind of orphan scenes in MASH throughout, you know, and they're kind of a stand in for innocence and they always tug at the heartstrings of, of the characters and, and I think serve as devices for just reminding us that, yeah, this is a funny, witty show that's kind of like high school, but it's also about war and, and Gelbart and, um, you know, the other, um, you know, all, all of them have said that we were never going to do a, a show that was, trying to treat war as a sitcom and, right. you know, and I think, so you have these, the kid, these very sentimentally, you know, kind of heartstring tugging plot devices with the pup, you know, and it's a puppy. It's not a dog, right? It's a little dog. It's a puppy, yeah. baby dog. And, and, you know, and I think they are, you know, they're using it as a device to kind of um, give Margaret her epiphany that'll allow her to, to really see and relate to Cooper and Cooper's vulnerabilities, but she won't admit that to Cooper. Right? <laughs> no, no. I love that. That leads into the next scene of them in, in post-op where Margaret comes to Cooper and says, you know, I've been maybe a little too hard on you. And she says, this place gets to everybody. And sooner or later, you can't help but let it out, you know, and, and, and says, you know, basically she says, it's very understanding of you major. Thank you. Margaret walks away. And then she says, why the change? And Margaret just pauses and says, none of your business. Right. Just don't let it get to you. And it's a great button on that scene of like, Margaret's only going to go so far. And yeah. she much kind of like how Colonel Potter had to Bigfoot her a little bit. He's, she's doing that here of like, no, you don't no, You're not, you're not privy to that information. Just go with what I told you and, and, move forward but uh we're we're not friends here like you know, that's that's not the relationship we're gonna have 
So she's going to give up her image up to a point, but she's got to do it in a face-saving way. And her face-saving way is, I'm not going to tell you why. I'm I'm not going to make myself vulnerable by telling you about the dog and how upset I got and how that caused me to see your predicament or condition. So she, she'll, she'll stand down (laughs) from her kind of authority and, you know, authoritarian kind of management style and public humiliation of this nurse, but she's not going to, and she'll apologize, but that's as far as she can go. She's got, she's got a saving way out. It's a great, great way to to end that, that storyline. So then, we're in Raider's office where they demand to see his tattoo and they're like, roll up your sleeve. And Raider's like, that won't do it. Take off your shirt. That won't do it. And then it's Hawkeye who's like, did you get it on your tush? And they're like, we demand to see it. And he, you know, Raider says no. And Raider's like, and uh, Hawkeye's like, that doesn't even make any sense. You drop your pants with the tattoo artist, but uh, not us, you know? And then I have Colonel Potter uh, with a great uh, grin on his face, on Harry Morgan's face, where he's like, uh, Corporal? And for the time being, you still are a corporal. <laughs> Let me remind you of something. It is my duty to inspect every part of this camp. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean I love- like literally every part. Literally every part. Every body part is under my purview. Yeah. And I love that they that they're gonna insist that radar do it in the office here <laughs> with like somebody could walk in. I don't know, like a visiting general or something, but no. They're just going to have Radar drop his pants right there. And he does. No HR. Yeah, no, again, no HR. There we go. And um, they're looking at it and they're like, it's a teddy bear, but it's so tiny. And then that leads to the bit where he says, you know, no, no, no. It's, you know, uh, Hawkeye. I mean, a BJ has the dad joke. Nope. You, you did a Radar. No buts about it. And, uh, you know, Hawkeye's like, you know, you're going to be stuck with that the rest of your life. Or, no, 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 no. I had him draw. I, I had him draw it on with ink. It'll. It'll come off when I get a bath. And Hawkeye's like, my God, it is permanent. And that has Gary Bergar, Gary Berghoff is in radar, in radar form is got some forms in front of him. And right as Hawkeye delivers the butta bum, my God, it is permanent. Radar stamps one of the forms with the stamper, which gives it such a like kind of thing, kind of rhythm to it. And that's the end of the scene. So a uh, great gag way to get out of the, this, this B plot. But again, same thing. He's going to give up this image that he's going to project of this kind of tattooed masculinity. But he's still got a tattoo of sorts. He's got some face-saving, uh, face-saving way out of this, even if it's small and washable and hidden and, and a teddy bear. He still has a tattoo of sorts. Not going to. He's got a face-saving way out of this, and um, and and then he's going to go and lift weights, right? <laughs> Right. Well, the, yeah. The next scene is the, the button scene on the episode where Radar has decided to turn to weightlifting. Now, I kind of wonder where did he get this weightlifting equipment? Where did that come from? Sparky at the, at the yeah, I get, maybe Sparky said it to him. I don't know. Is that something you can get easily? Uh, you know, from at, at a mash unit in in middle of South Korea. But okay, so he's working on it, and Colonel Potter's like, forget it, Radar. You know, he's like, you'll the minute you stop, all that muscles turn to flab, you know, forget it. Uh, there is a wonderful another bit of physical comedy where uh, Radar grabs the barbell, jerks hard, and he grabs it so hard that his hat flies off, which is just a great bit of physical comedy on Gary Berghoff's part that he just it's just that kind of in the little the it reminds me of when um, Indiana Jones punches that Nazi. 
in the uh in the in the uh subterranean camp and the hat just flies up in the air defying all laws of physics but it doesn't matter because it's a funny gag and we see that you know no it's not gonna work and colonel potter says why don't you go get me a cookie and of course that means colonel potter is slightly tempted to try and lift the weights himself he puts his paper down he uh i love he does again he does like a bit of physical comedy where he like he flexes he pushes his arms out he like crinkles his fingers he grabs the bar, he moves it maybe a half an inch, and he clearly tears something yeah. uh, in his midsection. Hernia. <laughs> and yeah, and then and wanders out. And that's the end of our episode. It's a great, great joke to end the show with. Potter's like, well, I can try to do this mass male, you know, kind of macho male thing. No. No, no, it's not going to work. <laughs> it's not worth the hernia operation. <laughs> so overall, it's a terrific show. Images, again, no, no. Surprise, written by Bert Perleski. It's a great show. It's got some great drama. It's got some great comedy. Uh, as you pointed out, the, the two storylines kind of dovetail together in a really nice way, really sort of the sort of two and a half storylines. Uh, Loretta Swit just crushing it in this episode. Just in, I mean, she always does, but in particular, the show. So it's a, a really solid season six episode. I thought it was great. And, and, and it was just funny. It was funny. I guess they had to offset the, I was thinking about the kid, like, why do kids like MASH? I mean, I think a show that involves an animal dying would be really, really hard for kids. Mm, so they probably yeah. had to, <laughs> to make it extra funny. Just, and, and adults too, right? I mean, that's just, oh, but, uh. Um, like, do we have to have the dog dying in this one? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we got to leaven it up with some, some goofiness. So by the way, we do never, we never see Nurse Cooper again. Now that's not a surprise because almost every guest nurse in the history of MASH. We see in one episode and she's never seen again. If we want to be really negative, you could say, well, right after this episode ended, she threw up one more time and then she did get transferred out. But <laughs> we'll prefer to say, no, she served her term at the 477 and was rotated out. So, Don't Rob, know. can I ask you a question? This follows on my favorite question of yours, which is why do kids like MASH? Sure, of course. All right. So my question to you is why do women like MASH? So... I mean, I, like I said, I grew up in the seventies and early eighties in the suburbs. I am still friends with all of those women and I've made new friends along the way who are all around my age and to a one, we all love the show. And there's only one strong woman character who is, you know, kind of in a leading role and that's Margaret. It's all other men. There are, you know, there's the nurses file in and out. They all have, you know, ABC names um, (laughs) as if they're kind of expendable or replaceable. Um, except Nurse Kelly, of course. Uh, so why do women like this show? I mean, it's, and especially the early episodes, which were pretty sexist. Do you, but we all do. Do you have any theories on that? Uh, I mean, good Lord, I don't want to feel like I'm answering for, for women. What the hell do I know? My guess would be that it all, yes, in the beginning, it's definitely a very sexist show. But as it wore on, I think it had such humanity and that the the male characters um i would say the characters were all the male characters were incredibly humane again frank burns aside were emotionally they had emotional depth and were weren't a bunch of like lunkheads you know what i mean that kind of thing i would imagine that that would be something that women would be attracted to that these men were emotionally available in a lot of ways to each other and to the audience and so i would imagine that that's helped keep the show uh, palatable for everybody yeah because it, it, it you know i think that's a good point and i was going to say too when the i think when the when the men are misbehaving i mean they use a lot of tropes but 
the women kind of take them down a notch. And um, I asked my one of my friends this question and, you know, she said, look, I mean, Margaret, this is the fi- early 50s and Margaret's a major. Um, mm-hmm. you know, she's a strong she's a strong character who's obviously devoted her career to public service, which is what military is. And she's you know, she's for all the frank silliness and her poor choice in men and the, you know, in most of these episodes, um, she's a really top notch professional and she's really made it to a very prominent role in a time where we didn't associate women with really prominent being very high up in kind of formal hierarchies of authority. Yeah. I, but I would agree with everything you're saying. Yeah. I would tend to think, I mean, I said, that's what, that's what uh, the appeal was for me. You know, when I was a kid, it was that these were not, I was not a macho kid. The surprise, everybody. Uh, and, and those, those were men that I respected because they were in touch with their feelings and their emotions. And that was something you generally don't, you don't see in television to this day. You still don't see it as much, you know? So, uh, I think, I think that's why the, the show resonated with, with so many people. So, um, okay. So what we've been talking about, what your, what your favorite line has not been. You talk about runner ups and stuff, but what is your favorite line or joke from this episode? Oh gosh, now I have to decide. Okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about one that we haven't talked about because you can assume all the ones that we have. Well, let's see. Okay. I will just go with Hendrix where he, uh, where there, where he is talking to Radar about getting a tattoo. And Hendrix says, you know, those tattoo artists are as good as Rembrandt. And he said, you know, you've heard of him, the art, the painter. And Radar goes, Oh, we have aluminum siding. <laughs> <laughs> But I also like the one you already mentioned that when uh, when it's revealed that Radar has drawn his tattoo on um, and he says, it'll come off when I take a bath. And Hawkeye says, my God, it is permanent. I, I thought that one was very funny, too. <laughs> um, well, let's say you, you mentioned one that I was going to go with, which was the whole uh, money, 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 you know, uh, quiet. He's praying. So I, I picked an alternate because I had I had another one that I wanted to go with. And then uh, since we already named it, I'll, I'll, na- I'll go with my second runner up is where the nurses arrive. And BJ says, what an unexpected pleasure. And Hawkeye goes, oh, you know how this ends? Which is, <laughs> this is a great, that's a very season two Hawkeye kind of line that he, you know, was sort of like propositioning the nurses, even though they're standing there and they're clearly, that's not what they're there for. But I just like that little repartee, repartee between the two of them. I thought that made me laugh. So, but yeah, it's a, I mean, just, it's a terrific episode. And, um, you know, that Bert Perlesky has one more show left, uh, this season and that'll be it for him. So, uh, he, he was, as I mentioned, he had a fantastic batting average on the show. He just knew how to write this show. So, uh, so it's just a really great episode. So Kristen, uh, thank you so much for coming by and doing this with me. Well, thank you so much. This was the highlight of my week, month, year, probably. Oh my. <laughs> and thank you for all of your dedication to this. You're, you're, uh, these are such fun podcasts and such shows that are so fun to relive and brings up so many memories too, that are really warm and nice. Well, thank you very much. You said it was, it was great talking to you. So uh, again, we'll have to have you back for the numerous hundreds of other episodes we have left to do here on Mashkit. All right. Thanks, Rob. So of course, everybody, you can find all the back episodes of this show on our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show in any podcatcher of your choice. We're always talking mash over on Twitter at mash four seven seven cast. And finally, if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast, and there you're going to lock various awards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So big thanks to Daniel Ulrich, Nicholas Prom, Russell Burbage, Dan Peel, Mike Thomas, Joe Perino, Billy Shulman, Dennis Bailey, Kara Kay, 
Tim English, Adam Ackerman, Lisa P., Laura Braun, Stefan Van Skyke, David Mann, and Michael Kelly, no relation that I know of, for their support of uh, MASHCast. I really do appreciate it. So thanks, everybody, for listening. We will see you next week. But until then, that is all. You must have an opinion on this, Charles. Well, epigram time. As a matter of fact, tattoos are the common man's way of investing in art. There. Have them tattoo that on your chest.